You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Uh, guilty confession to you guys as a church family is that when I was younger, uh, I used to be a little bit celebrity obsessed. I used to keep up with People Magazine, you know, those magazines that you're not supposed to inquire, the little magazines at the, the corner of the... The Snickers bars there in the, in the supermarket, there's something intriguing about it, so interesting about what it would be like to be rich and famous and then maybe be young, rich, and famous like JTT or something like that, or Macaulay Culkin. I remember when I was a kid, I got a little book from my mom of like where celebrities lived, like little celebrity spotting things like their address and stuff, and I wrote Macaulay Culkin a letter about how cool I thought it was that he booby-trapped his house, and I sent him, I sent him a little map of like how I would booby-trap my house if... Uh, if any burglars tried to break into Forest Drive in Albany, New York. It's a true story. I did run into uh, Scottie Pippen one time in Chicago. It was across the street from Nike Town on Michigan Avenue. He was the tallest person I'd ever seen in my life. He's like bigger. You notice that when celebrities, you see them? They're either bigger or they're way smaller or something like Tom Cruise than you think that they are. <laughs> he had about seven shoeboxes of Nikes that he was like, Rolling out of the store, they shut the whole Nike town down for him, and he rolled out into a Mercedes-Benz with a license plate that said Pip on it. And my dad, who's about five foot eight, bull in a china shop, Chinese dude, who's lived here for 30 years but has a thick Chinese accent, he said, do you want me to ding his car? <laughs> I was like, no, Dad. It's the last thing I want you to do when I go meet Scotty Pippen in 1997 is ding his car in the middle of Michigan Avenue. You freak out when you see famous people. You think you're going to be cool. She freak out. I did see Danny Glover one time. He was riding on one of those carts, and I was like, man, it must be nice to just get escorted from gate to gate in, in, the, uh, in, the, uh, in, in the airport, just going wherever you want because you're a celebrity. The Lord convicted my heart uh, in the last uh, couple of years, you know, about some of the unhealth of following celebrities too much. Um, following celebrities is a bit of an escape. It, it's, it's sort of a fantasy of what would it be like to be rich and famous, to have luxury, and uh, an escape really from the normal humdrum day-to-day life that we sometimes live. Um, but it's convicting in, in that way because it's, it's not just an escape uh, into luxury. Uh, when, when it is that we're looking at celebrities, we're also looking at the highest highs, but we're also looking to the lowest lows. And uh, when I'm looking at Tiger Woods and his most recent scandals in his, in his, in his life, and when I'm looking at Justin Bieber and, and the highs and lows of his life, what I'm really doing is not just escaping into the luxury of their life, I'm escaping the ugliness of my life. And for a moment, when I see a celebrity's life plastered out uh, on, on the front headlines or on the television screen or on, on, on Instagram, uh, I'm seeing something uglier usually, or at least I convince myself of what's going on in my own heart, in my own living room, and I get an escape from the things that are going on in my heart and in my life to go and see something that's magnified and exemplified there in, in the headlines of some of those newspapers. And so, so Jesus has this really stern warning in the beginning of, of Matthew 7, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where he says this, Matthew 7, verse 7, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you'll be judged. And with the measure you used, it'll be measured to you. There's a stern, harsh warning about what it is we do when we point our fingers at others. 
And if we pay careful attention to Jesus' sermon, there's lots of harm that is done when we, when we allow our heart to turn outward like that, to point our finger or focus attention on the mess of our neighbors or maybe even celebrities that we've never met before. And notice what he says is that the harm that's being done is not so much the harm that falls on the person you're judging, but on the person that's judging. In other words, he's, he's not warning us not to judge because it hurts people and loses friends, although it is an ugly thing to do. Really, the biggest person that's hurt is not the one you're judging, it's the person that's doing the judging that gets hurt. Notice it says in verse 2, in the same ways you judge others, you'll be judged. So what I think is going on is, is, is a little more sophisticated than just kind of this rubber glue thing, like I call somebody a, a pervert or something, and then all of a sudden it just bounces back to me as though I made up the rule that bounces back to me into the echo of the echo chamber. I think what's being done here is that in judging people, we're not creating judgment, we're revealing it. We're asking people to be holy in ways that, that we're actually not, not holy, and so it's kind of like, like multitasking. Like, there's NBA basketball players that can dribble and pass at the same time, and most of us can chew gum and walk at the same time, but I think what Jesus is saying is that nobody in this room is able to judge people and repent of sin at the same time. That the, that the harm there in, in what happens when a human judges is they, they simultaneously, as they are judging someone else, they prohibit themselves from repenting of the same sin. So it's impossible to listen to a sermon for someone else and listen to your, for it for yourself at the same time. It's impossible to be fixated on the sin of your spouse and continue in being repentant of your own sin within that marriage. And so the way that judgment will work is, is not so much, it is harmful. It's harmful and destroys relationships. It's harmful and destroys families and so forth and churches when it is that we judge. But the greatest harm that falls on the person is not the person being judged, but the person that's doing the judging because the person can't repent and judge at the same time. And so it is that the, the real harm, the, leth the lethalness of, of judgment is that it allows somebody to believe the gospel but believe that it's for someone else and not for them to hear the gospel and use it to judge others rather than repent in their own heart. And this is the, the constant and critical nature of what hypocrisy looks like. And so we don't have enough time as we get into Romans 2 to consider the rest of the sermon, but Jesus has a really stern warning to us, right? In Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, down the page, enter through the narrow gate, he says, for the wide gate is broad and the road that leads to destruction for many and many enter through it, but small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only few find it. And then he goes down, and he gives three different little sermons about what's false and what's true. First, he talks about false prophets and true prophets, and he says the way that you can tell a false prophet from a true prophet is not what they're saying, but the fruit that comes out of their life. And then he talks about the difference between a false disciple and a true disciple. And I love what Tim Keller says, that the, the false disciple actually has pinpoint theological, theological accuracy. In other words, the word Lord, Lord is theologically apt. That's what you want to say on the theology exam. Lord, Lord, Jesus is Lord. So theologically and doctrinally, the false disciple is right. The fact that they say it twice emphasizes a level of emotionalism even, that the false disciple could be someone saying the right thing with a lot of passion, and the false disciple could be healing many of his name and prophesying many things, but he says those people in those categories might still be in the category of away from me, you evildoer. And so 
it seems to be that the sermon of Jesus, and really if you read throughout all the Gospels that Jesus is talking about, is that the greatest enemy to the Gospel is not prostitution, tax collecting, being a Roman citizen, being a Jew, right? The greatest enemy to the Gospel and the widest road to hell is hypocrisy. The ability to be so close to the Gospel that you think it's for someone else and not for you. To be so close to church that you're far from Jesus. And so Paul opens up this second letter, if you guys are here for the, or second chapter, as you guys were here for the first chapter, and he already anticipates the response of his listeners. If you were here last time, we talked about the wrath of God that's being revealed and therefore the handing over of humanity into their own sin, starting in the heart and then into the hands, or then into the head and then into the heart. The real, the real issue of sin is not just doing wrong, but it's redefining wrong. It's collecting an echo chamber around me to worship an idol and redefine what's right and wrong on my own terms. And he, and he swings and hinges into chapter two, already knowing, having not met these people, exactly what they're going to say. Aha, I'm glad you said that, Jesus. Let me tell you about my brother. Let me tell you about my wife. Let me tell you about another political party. Let me tell you about my neighbor. He hasn't even met these people yet. And you might say, well, maybe it's just a Jew and Gentile thing, and he understood the debates of you know, the hard-heartedness of the Jews and the, and the kind of entitlement that creeps in with being circumcised and going somewhere on the Sabbath and eating the right food, right? Like maybe it's just a Jew and Gentile thing, but I don't think that's so. I think that he is a pastor and a missionary that's done life enough to know this isn't a Jew and Gentile thing. It's an Adam and Eve thing. It's a people thing. That people do not have the capacity to repent and judge at the same time, so they choose judging instead of repenting. That's a people thing. And so what Paul says about this in chapter 2 is that what we do when we judge is we show contempt for God's kindness. We show contempt for his kindness. And he, and he almost treats judgment like it's an escape. He calls it, it's like a drug almost. It's an escape out of what's going on inside of my heart by pointing and, and looking and putting a magnifying glass on what's going on in other people's lives. It's this escape. And he says, don't think you can escape your own repentance through your judgment of others. We're all answering to God. And God's silence in your life, like him not disagreeing with you, is not agreement, it's patience. It's a patience that if it takes 10 minutes or 10 years or 50 years or 80 years, time's on his side, not on yours, and he's waiting for you to repent. And so today, Paul would say, if he were here, and the gospel says to us, through the Spirit of God, that today is not for judgment, it's for repentance. The reason why you were woken up today, the reason why you have your life and your being today, is so that today you might repent to the kingdom of God, the best news you've ever heard, that you and I might be finally convicted. He's waiting on you and I. He might have been, he's, he might have been waiting all week, or he might have been waiting all of our lives, or maybe he's been waiting like for generations of habits that have been passed down from one generation to the next, knowing that as long as the Spirit of God is in the room under the Word of God, then people have the miraculous ability to repent to the kingdom of God. That you have been drawn here in some part by the Holy Spirit to be able to repent, not to judge. And so don't judge is not a thing that just means we throw out all truth and 
pretend like empirical reality doesn't exist. Like if somebody is abusing their child, it's not right. It's not saying that we don't handle, you know, the specks in other people's eyes. But what it's saying is it gives us a position and a posture of where we sit relative of truth, which is the person in Christ and the person in the gospel never says, how could you? And always says, how can I help? How can I serve you? How can I, how can I love you? So this is the way it says in Romans 2. It's almost as though Paul's read a few of Jesus' sermons. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you pass judgment and do the same thing. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. And so when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? So um, one of my favorite uh, movies at Christmas time is The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. And uh, I just love how bitter and uh, sad he is, you know, the Grinch, Jim Carrey Grinch, that he's like in his little cave eating onions and glass and stuff and like being bitter about what the Who's are doing in Whoville. Like he really drum up that 20-minute, you know, a uh, little Christmas vignette. One of the things that he does is he sits in his corner and like loathes his life as he, he screams out to the echo within his cave and calls the, calls the echo an idiot. And then, of course, the echo just comes back and says, you're an idiot back. You're an idiot. You're an idiot. Goes back and forth. And so, as we thought about it earlier, like I don't think that when it is we're judging people that we are creating new laws. Like it's not like saying, well, the way that you said somebody was late and claimed that that was annoying and got in your way, like you weren't creating a law, you weren't like adding on to God's law and supplementing God's law. Actually, in your, in your speaking out against that person, that echo comes right back to you because you've actually realized that you're expecting what you're not willing to give. I think that's kind of more along the lines. And so there's like, this great apologetic argument, I can't remember which book it was, it might have been Case for Christ or something like that, but they were talking about people that would, let's say, grow up in irreligious environments or argue for moral relativism, and they just say, well, what do you expect of others? They said, you know, if we were to wear, for example, a tape recorder around our neck, or I guess these days would be an iPhone with a little red recorder, and only recorded the, the curses and the arguments and the anger and the grudges that we had against other people and said, fine, you can just throw out God's Bible, and you can throw out God's law. How many of you think with that tape recorder on your neck, you would stand up to your own law that you said in these last 50 or 60 or 70 years, the things that you expected? In other words, I love the way that Jackie Hill Perry says it in her book on holiness. The world is not actually over holiness. They're not not believing in holiness. They just don't believe in holiness for themselves. In our complaining and our grudging and our what you should be doing on our Instagram accounts to other people, we are prophesying holiness but just for others and not us. We are expecting others to do what we're not expecting of ourselves. And so isn't it funny how specks, as small they are, are easier to find than planks? It's funny that when we're late, right, that when we show up late, like I showed up late to the prayer meeting this morning, trying to get my act together, you know? How much along the route of us being late, we are expecting and needing and desiring mercy, but when someone other is late for us, we're giving judgment. It's funny, the, those of us that are married in the room, that 
let's say, have a spouse and they lost something. It's funny how when we lose something, it's a description of our day and circumstances, how fast the day is going and the things that people are expecting of us. And when somebody else loses something, how it's a judgment indictment on their character, why they're always losing stuff. It's funny the way it works, the disproportionate nature of the ability to see sin outside of me than sin inside of me. And so ultimately, at least by way of scripture, if not experience, we know that today is not about judgment, it's about repentance for at least three different reasons because number one, judging people doesn't work. Have you ever tried to chastise somebody into being punctual? Does that ever work? Have you ever done that? Somebody raised their hand and explained to me how that ever has helped anybody. It doesn't work. They're also, it's just gonna add to their frustration. It's gonna add to their own anxiety and fear and it's gonna cause more and more problems with this. Like judging doesn't work, right? Secondly, number two, even if it did work, we'd probably recorrect the person into something that's not quite the standard of Jesus. And ultimately, when we're criticizing somebody, we're not really criticizing their work We're actually showing contempt from God because we're telling God, you haven't done enough work in this person's life and I want you to change this person faster. How come you haven't worked fast enough? And we've forgotten all of the mentors and the grace and the mercy that we've received and we changed the grace that we received and translated into judgment on the people around us. And so ultimately, the greatest greatest victim really of, of judgment is not on the person that we're judging, it's on us because we've, we've spent there for a day or even 10 minutes or 20 minutes or 30 minutes or 10 years, spent a day trying to judge people in the gospel rather than repent in it and receive life. And we missed all those opportunities to see healing, healing in our hearts for lust, healing in our hearts for anger, healing in our hearts for criticism, healing in our hearts, all these beautiful opportunities of people that are so close to church and religion that they're far from Jesus. They window shop the gospel through judgment. And so he goes into it, and he already knows where the Jews are headed, mentally at least, as they would read a letter like this, because you know, they were God's chosen people, and they had the circumcision, and they had the kosher diet, and they had the Sabbath. And so he explains to them a very critical, important part about the covenant and the covenantal nature of the Jewish faith, and that is the covenant gives favor to the Jews, but not favoritism that the favor of the covenant was always meant to be a gift and never an entitlement. And although they couldn't lose it, that didn't change the fact that it didn't give them any sort of favoritism, that ultimately God was going to judge them, that they were going to stand before God themselves, not just the Gentiles that they were doing life with. And so he says it, uh, he says it this way, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Then he says this, God will repay each person according to what they have done. Not necessarily what they ate or, you know, who they affiliated with, who they associated with, who they retweeted, but what they had done. To those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life, but... For those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. 
All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles do not have the law by nature, the things required by the law, they do those things, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness in their thoughts, sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. In other words, sometimes we see people practice righteousness outside the church, not saying that they're a Christian, better than inside the church. And that's God's patience. That's his kindness that it might lead his church to repentance and lead the nations to repentance. Verse 16, this will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. And so what Paul is getting at here is that there's no such thing as salvation through affiliation. There's only one way to salvation, repentance. To turn and trust Jesus as Lord and Savior is the level ground of every human being that has ever walked the earth, that all, all men and women have fallen short of the glory of God. And God, in verse 4, is the only one that will judge. And when he judges, he will judge rightly. And he will judge the secrets of man's hearts, the things that people don't see, the stuff that's not on Instagram. That's, that's where the judgment takes place. And so we, as Protestant Christians, we get really nervous about that verse, right? God will repay each person according to what they have done. Right? That makes us really, really nervous because Justification through faith alone, like I'm going to be judged on what Jesus did, right? The truth is, here's the deal. Salvation is not a three-step process. It's a one-step process. And Paul says that those that are justified are sanctified, and those that are sanctified are glorified. Salvation is a one-step process. You cannot have the salvation without sanctification. There, there, is no, there, there is no way to be in Christ and have Christ not in me. So what I'm not saying is that it's impossible for somebody to confess Christ when they're 16 Live like hell until they're 88, right? But at the very end, come back and return. If Jesus saves somebody, they've saved somebody, he saved somebody for life. Salvation is the grip of God's hands, not our hands on him. That's the idea of what salvation is. But here's the deal. There is no such thing as a fire insurance salvation. Salvation is not a fire insurance paper. It's a birth certificate. It is somebody that has been saved, is being saved and will be saved. The person that is justified will be sanctified and will be glorified. And so there is no real assurance, as Jesus says, Lord, Lord, didn't I prophesy? Didn't I do these things away from me? You never knew. The only assurance is the transformed heart. It's the circumcised heart. And you guys seen this uh, 80s movie called Weekend at Bernie's. These two little bimbo mimbos get in with the boss, who is actually trying to frame them and get them killed in the first place. But anyways, spoiler for a really great movie that I'm sure you're always going to go out and see. And so they go out to his little beach house and his yacht, and the mafia, like, kills him before they get out there. And so they realize that if everybody finds out that Bernie's dead, not only is their vacation over, but they might get blamed for his death. And so their job for the next couple weeks is to keep Bernie looking like he's alive, but he's not. That's the whole story. (laughs) It doesn't get any more sophisticated if you weren't alive in the 80s, that's what we were watching. And so they would put, you know, the sunglasses on him, and they, like, stapled his toupee on him. 
And they like drug him behind the boat on this little like ski-doo thing to pretend like he was water skiing. The laughs keep, they kept rolling all hour and a half. They, they had him on the beach, you know, with the shirt on and they'd have all these people talking to him and they would move his hands to pretend like he was, he was moving, you know. They would tie up his, his ankles and walk him up to the boat to pretend like he was alive. And I believe that when we do answer to God and are judged by the Lord, we are judged by the work that Jesus does, but not just for us, in us. And so all of these things that, are, that they're talking about is not so much about perfection, but what does it say? Persistence. This is what the justified heart looks like. It's seeking good, not self-seeking. It's seeking glory, not suppressing the truth. It's seeking honor and immortality. Like, like in other words, if you move somebody around and drag them to church and even push them in and outside of a, of a baptismal and we drag them to small group and we push at them and we make them do the dance and all that sort of thing, that none of that stuff matters is if there isn't a spiritual heartbeat. This is what Paul is saying. That a justified person has a sanctified heart. And ultimately, Jesus did not come to be a life coach. He came to be a heart surgeon to do a miracle work through repentance. When we're repenting, we're not just telling God we're as bad as he says that we are. We're asking God to give us a heart transplant. We're asking God to turn a dead person into life. And so I remember when Rose, you know, when we first found out that Kyra was pregnant and we went to the first ultrasound, there's that little noise that just brings chills up and down your spine that will change your life forever. And this is how it sounds. The famous passage that Jesus says to John, like Nicodemus in John 3.16, flesh can give birth to flesh, but only spirit can give birth to spirit. And if a person has gone through the baptism thing and done the bumper stipper thing and all that sort of thing, but they, they don't want Jesus and they still want sin, then I'm just saying, like, the, the assurance of salvation is this, that a dead person has been brought to life. Not that a person can doctrinally check off all the boxes or not that the person does all the right things, that the person was dead and now is alive. And it's as simple, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's as uh, distinct and black and white as that that a person that is saved is spiritually alive and has spiritual life signs. And so here's where he starts to dig into uh, the depth of, of, of what he's uncovering when it comes to judgment and repentance and salvation. He says that, that God will judge the secrets of the heart, and then he speaks to us and all of our outward cleaning and all of our outward projections and all of our outward distractions. And he says this in chapter 2, verse 17, Now you... If you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what's, what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor for the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, then you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you not steal? Do you say that people should not commit adultery, do you not commit adultery? Who abhor idols, do you rob t temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And then he gets into the heart of the matter, the surgical depth of the gospel. Verse 25, circumcision, he says, it has no value. If you have tattoos or no tattoos, what's going on on your body and how you look? 
Ultimately, even if you're dressing the right way or if you're not dressing the right way, that's not, that's not the difference between spiritual life. If you break the law, you have become as though you have been not circumcised. So then, if you are not circumcised, keep the law's requirements. Will they not be regarded as those who were, were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code of circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. The circumcision is the circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from people, but from God. And so what what Paul is examining here is that the gospel is nothing short than a heart transplant. It's a miracle. When is it that we turn and we repent and we see our sin, we know that we've been visited by the Holy Spirit because only the Holy Spirit can do that. And we confess our sin, and, and what happens is, you see, like, there's, there's a false gospel, and it sounds something like this. Maybe you've heard it before. Maybe you preached it to yourself before. Maybe you've heard it in church before, and it sounds like, something like this. You suck until you die. I came here to get you here on Sunday to remind you that you suck. And now your job is to preach the good news of how much everybody else sucks. And you're supposed to convince them and argue them and use great apologetic arguments for why they suck and don't know it. And if we're lucky, we'll suck, and then we'll die, and then we'll go to heaven. Amen. And can I tell you that I read the Bible a lot, and I really want to know the Lord's heart, and I read a lot of Old Testament and New Testament, and so do you, and I don't see a gospel that says you suck until you die. You know what I see? I see you have the Spirit of God until you die. And then you're resurrected to live with him forever. And the Spirit of God that can resurrect Christ from the dead can change your heart. I mean, give him credit for what he can do. And if he's done it, give him credit for what he's done. He's changed your heart. He's not a life coach. He's a heart surgeon. And so to be surprised or intimidated by sin, repent of your sin and bring it to him. And just like he got Lazarus out of the grave, he's going to get your heart changed. This is what he says in Jeremiah. This is the prophecy of what his people are, not to suck until we die. The days are coming, declares the Lord. By the way, today is the day. Not for judgment, but for healing. That any of us that would come and repent and believe the good news, that we would have the kingdom of God in our hearts and breaking forth out of clay pots. Not perfect, but persistent. When I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah, it will not be like the old covenant, I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. You see, the law was never meant to perfect us or make us whole. It was to show us that we were broken. It was to reveal to us in certain measures so I couldn't just change the flavor of the day of what holiness looked like. It looked me in the face and told me every day, if there's any advantage to being a Jew, it's that I had to wake up every day and see that and know that my heart needed something I didn't have. And it called, it called to me to repent to the Messiah that would come, that it pointed to, that he would fulfill this law, not only for me, but in me as well. There's no such thing as being in Christ and Christ not in me. There's no such thing as, uh, as justified without sanctified and glorified. And this is what he says about you and me. This is where we live. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me for themselves. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. 
This, in fact, was what David was crying out for in Psalm 51 when he, when he, when he sinned with Bathsheba. He wasn't just pr- praying to get off the hook. He was, cr- he was praying for a new creation to come up out of his heart. He says, create in me, O God, says David, a pure heart. Does God, answer his, does God answer his prayers? Does God honor his covenant? Oh God, this is what David says. Renew a steadfast spirit in me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. And to cheat ahead into the end of the book as we plow through Romans and get into Romans 8 later on in later months, this is what's true of you and me, that the spirit of God has come to dwell in us and change our hearts. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh anymore, the stuff that you want to do. No, your desires have changed. Not just what you do, but what you want. That's the authority of the resurrected Christ in, in, inside of us. He says, you are in the realm of the Spirit, and indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, not just you in Christ, but Christ in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, our flesh is like these magnets, they pull at the desires, just because, Romans 7, it just got done talking like, like he's a schizophrenic. Paul is talking about the things that he wants to do and the things that he doesn't want to do and the wrestling there. Right, But the wrestling isn't a yin and a yang or a good dog and a bad dog. It's the wrestling of Jesus' foot on the head of the snake that conquers all flesh and death inside of our bodies. And so what is in us that is flesh is present, but it's going into the past. And what is in us that is the spirit is moving us into the future. And once death is done with, it will have no reign on us anymore. So the death right, that is living in you is passing away. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give you life to your mortal bodies because the spirit who lives in you. Translation, you don't suck until you die. In Christ, you have the spirit until you die. And he is not letting go of you, and he's not done working yet. And even if your heart doesn't even feel repentant, and it feels like it's harder today than it was yesterday, he's not done working yet. And lucky for you, salvation is not based on your grip, but his. And he's continue working on you because he's a master heart surgeon. Like if there's anything that God is good at healing, which he is incredible at healing, eyes and leprosy and arms and feet and all sorts of things, But the number one thing that God specializes is the healing of the heart, to want what it didn't used to want. And so I'm just telling you today, if you've been dragging yourself to church and you're like that dead Uncle Bernie that's on that beach and you feel like you've just been dragged by your wife and you've been pulled this way and pulled that way and the worries of the world is pushing you to try and find answers, I'm just telling you there's something better than that, that he can get inside your heart and not just change what you do from the outside in, but change your heart from the inside out. That's what he's good at. That's what he's the best at. That's what he is that he's a, he's a master surgeon in that way. And so we were at an event yesterday, and it got me thinking about, about this scripture. We came out from a really, really fun event, and everybody was having a great time. And there was a security guard who uh, told us to, to back up and make way because behind him was a stretcher that was going to come through, a person that had a medical emergency. And we watched kind of the parting and the response of the crowd that was watching and a stretcher came through and there was a lady on there. She was maybe 60 or 70. And you could tell that paramedic was going hard on her chest for CPR. And her body was just not responding. And for that 10 seconds, all I could think of in my heart was, Jesus, heal her. Heal that woman's heart. And I saw, I saw her son probably and some of her family members come behind weeping. And I don't know the story. And I don't know, I don't know how she did. I don't know if, she, if she's alive today or not. 
looking at this scripture this week. This is, this is what literally hit me just 24 hours ago as I was watching this stretcher go by. I thought to myself, that lady, either today or at some point, is gonna go on out of this world and she's not gonna answer to me. She's gonna answer to God. Either with or without Jesus. And one day, whether it's soon or later, I'll be on a stretcher one day and I'm gonna answer to God. And I'm not gonna answer to any of my critics. I'm not gonna answer to any of the people that I blame in my life. I'm gonna answer to God for me. Because I can grab the microphone and talk real loud so everybody can hear me, but I can't grab the gavel. I don't judge, right? He judges. God will have the final word. And so I thought to myself, I let, let that sink in. I thought to myself, I said, if I had met that woman 10 minutes before I saw her on the stretcher, let me tell you the last thing that I'd be doing with her, judging her. That's the last thing that I'd be doing. I wouldn't be saying, how dare you? I'd be saying, how can I help? We're all sick down here. How can I help you? My position is not to judge you. Today is not for judgment. Today is for repentance. And after that, maybe love. It's not to throw out reality and truth. It's to readjust the position. I'm not the judge around here. I might be a nurse to help somebody get healed, but I'm not the judge. And I'm not the doctor. And I can't save my spouse. And I can't change my world. And I can't even change myself. So God, I need you to put me to sleep and heal my heart. That's what today's about. And so... Um, I don't know if you guys have ever been to the gym before. Me and Kyle Walker, I'm gonna drag you under the bus with me. Spent a time going to burn boot camp um, on Woodruff Road. It's a ladies' gym, guys. And, uh, and so as a guy, when you come into the ladies' gym, it's a circuit thing. It's on the weekend just to know, you know, what's going on in the ladies' gym. You're working out, and there's a little bit of judgment that goes on. You're like, this is gonna be, what are we gonna do? Some, like, burpees or something? I mean, how, how hard is this gonna be? We're going to do some knee push-ups. How hard is it going to be? Guys, I went to the first Saturday with Kyle and almost threw up outside of the thing. It was so hard. It was so hard. Like, it's like you will be amazed at what a sustained, you know, aerobic workout will do for you. No weights. There's no weights in there. Just you and that mat, and you lose every time. I was literally going to throw up. And, uh, but you know, it's like something special about the gym, like, there's a reason why we get up out of bed at 5 o'clock in the morning and go to work out with other people. There's like accountability, there's community, there's like people around you, you know, that are encouraging you. And the funny thing about the gym that's oftentimes better than church is really there's nobody judging you in the gym because everybody's like throwing up. <laughs> and it's just really hard to judge people when you're throwing up. And it's hard to judge that person when you know that they're a single mom and they're dragging in three kids and they've got diabetes, and they're trying to live their life and survive and see their grandkids, it's pretty stupid to go over there and tell them they're not doing the push-ups right. It's hard to do that. It's hard to judge when you're in the gym because you see what's going on in their circumstance, and you see how hard they're working, and you're seeing that their progress is just as hard as your progress, and maybe they're only doing 10 push-ups, but doggone it, you're throwing up too, doing 20 push-ups. And there's something about the gym, unfortunately, that brings more support than Christian communities sometimes. And the reason why is because I think in the gym we get a model of what's going on in the spiritual and the physical. And we actually get to see what's going on in the outside, what spiritually is going on in this room and the inside. You know that there's people in here that are bringing hard things spiritually and they don't need your judgment. They need your kindness and they need your repentance. And oftentimes when we get into spiritual environments, we don't see the burdens that we're going through. 
Many of us are performers, we're givers, not takers, and we just did 20 push-ups and we're wondering why we wanna throw up spiritually speaking, but we can't see all that because Paul is saying that the sickness doesn't exist for us in church on the outside. The, the battles that we're fighting are not flesh and blood, but spiritual principalities. And so we try to judge based on the outside, but Paul is saying, look, the gospel has come to do work on the inside. And if we could see even for just a minute what's going on, we'd stop being the judge and start being the helper. And so I think, I think the, the call today out of Romans 2 is to never associate closeness with church with closeness to Jesus. To never take today for granted because today is not the day for judgment but for repentance. And many people on a wide road spend most of their life next door to salvation and healing but missing it because they choose to judge rather than repent. They choose to look at the window rather than the mirror. But what if today, as Hebrews says, that if you heard his voice, then instead of doing what many people do is harden their heart, you turned your heart. What if today you repented of the anger that your grandfather passed down to your father and your father passed down to you? And for a minute got off of the screen thinking about why Ariana Grande is not doing something right and asked the Lord to heal your heart. Man, what if you found salvation instead of just a little relief and escape by judging somebody else? What if today you were to find salvation from anxiety today? Just because you turned your heart and you stopped being stubborn. He's a good surgeon. He knows what he's doing. And the righteous will live by faith. Not by their own strength. Not by their works. And so it's an open opportunity. I mean, he really is saying, it's like, yeah, I know you've been walking with God and you were Moses' great, 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 Abraham's great, 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 but none of that makes a difference. None of the decals or the baptisms or the YWAM or whatever that you did or did before, like none of that makes a difference. You either have a spiritual heartbeat or you don't. And you're either growing up in Christ day by day or you're not. And none of the other people can do that for you. The only person that can do that for you is you at the foot of the cross that says, Jesus, come save me. I'm broken, come save me. In other words, heaven, heaven, heaven belongs to the poor spirit. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.